and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbour as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces, and of the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So we've got a, a fair passage to get through this morning. This passage is really uh, split into five sections, five different shorter stories. And each of these stories addresses some kind of misconception, uh, misinterpretation of what have you. And we need to be quite weary uh, in life misconceptions because they can be quite dangerous. Uh, if we look back to the beginning of our Bible, to the story of Adam and Eve, for example, uh, we can see how God would tell Eve, well, thou shalt not uh, eat of the, the tree. And then when Eve would retell the story to the, the serpent, she would say, thou shalt not touch nor eat. God was very clear in his commandment, but Eve had been careful to heed exactly what God had said to her. Uh, and um, 
so on this led to a, a misconception of God's will, which um, through a series of events and a, a conversation with uh, the serpent have led to sin in the world. So we need to be very careful on these issues. Uh, the, the first one we come to is uh, this uh, section in verses 18 to 27, uh, where the Sadducees are asking about life after death. Uh, now, perhaps some of you have heard the phrase, uh, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's the, the situation here, is that the Sadducees had this idea um, that there was no resurrection, and that's what they were bringing before Christ. And uh, they bring this challenge about this, this woman who has a husband, and he dies, and uh, she marries his brother, and he dies, and so on and so forth. And they say, in the resurrection, who is she married to? And they didn't really want an answer here. They put this question forward as a kind of, see how ridiculous the resurrection is. But Christ goes on to answer him, doesn't he? He begins, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And this, this phrase really sums up not just this section, but the entire passage and how we avoid misconceptions. Because their misconception, when it boils down to it, is that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And you could perhaps say to yourself that they, they did know some of the scripture because they, they quoted it, didn't they? They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, and then they continue on. But this is a knowledge that they have in, in their head and not in their heart. They haven't experienced God and experienced the living word. They've just read, read it like a book. If you think of... Um, Theology scholars now would be perhaps a, a comparison. People that have read the Bible like a book and could tell you many things about the Bible on an academic level, but they don't have that, that knowledge of the power of God. You need both. And there's a danger for us here as well that um, we get too obsessed with these things and with um, these kind of knowledge uh, of a head knowledge um, when our faith is to be a believing faith it's about belief it's not about academia um, but Christ then goes on to, to answer their question doesn't he um, For when they rise from the dead they neither marry nor are given in marriage or like angels in heaven so that's an answer there and then he continues and as for the dead being raised and Sadducees didn't actually ask him about the resurrection they didn't say how does the resurrection work? They just pose the question to evidence that it doesn't work. So the Sadducees are here thinking, we can ask about this, but Christ has looked at that situation and he's, he's seen through to the root of their questioning. Kevin spoke to us about this, um, maybe it wasn't recently for you, but it was recently that I listened back to it, um, about how sometimes people present questions to us in a disingenuine way, um, whether about God or about the Bible, and I've got an example of that here. The Sadducees didn't really want an answer to this, um, this situation they had proposed. They didn't think there was an answer. Their anticipation was that Christ would say, it doesn't work. But Christ says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? A passage about the book, about the bush, sorry. Uh, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham. 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, the emphasis here is that I am. It doesn't say I was the God of Abraham, because Abraham still exists. It's not that he was the God of Isaac, because Isaac still exists. He, he is the God of Abraham, he is the God of Isaac, and he is the God of Jacob. If I was to say to you just now, I was Finlay Affleck's brother, you'd ask me, what happened to Finlay? Well, nothing Finlay's here, you know? You might even say, well, what, what happened in your relationship with Finlay? Why are you no longer Finlay's brother? I'm like, no, no, I am Finlay's brother. It doesn't make sense. He is the God of Abraham. And then we can see how he finishes off that section. Uh, he is uh, not the God of the dead, but the living. You're quite wrong. So we can see that their, their lack of knowledge of the scriptures and their lack of knowledge of the power of God has led to them being incorrect. And this misconception, in the case of the Pharisees, the misconception has led to a hopeless religion. Because these Pharisees, uh, not Pharisees, sorry, Sadducees, they're looking at their situation and they're thinking there is no resurrection. After death, that's it. If, if I die, I'm, I'm dead. God can't do nothing, can't do anything for them. Their, their religion is hopeless. But we know that's not the case, don't we? We know that there is a resurrection, as Christ has said here. Uh, and that God sent his son to die on a cross so that we can join him in heaven when we die. Our next section uh, continues on. Uh, verse 28 and 34. Um, here the, the scribes have looked at the previous section. They, they were obviously there and they've seen uh, this discourse that's been had between Christ and the Sadducees and they bring before Christ this question and uh, they say which commandment is the most important of all? See the scribes, their, their job was to memorise and to write out the law, write out the commandments. The, the commandments were their livelihood. The commandments filled their thoughts, the commandments instructed their actions. Everything in life for them was about the commandments. The commandments was what they lived for and the question here is of sorts, how do we live for God? What is the most important commandment? What is the most important of these things that they've been spending their life involved in? Jesus answers, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That seems pretty self-explanatory to me. Um, love God and love your neighbour. So, I was then asking myself about these questions and in what ways do I love God? And, uh, Christ, he, he says here, you should love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. He gives us four areas in which we can love God. Um, this idea being that we love God with our whole being, but it's the picture here is divided into four parts. So I ask myself, well, you know, perhaps I, I could say, oh well, I love God because I give all my my time to God. I do do loads of things for God. I I'm involved in loads of works, but perhaps I'm not loving God in other ways. So, uh, I thought to myself, what questions can I 
um, good to myself to analyse, if you like, um, how I, I'm loving God with my whole being. So I was thinking about loving the Lord with my heart, and I, I thought, um, are my desires aligned with God's? Um, is my will aligned with God's? Do I, do I seek to, to follow God's will? Uh, to love God with all your soul. For, what do I feel about God? What do you feel about God? When I talk about God, do you experience a sense of joy? Or do you have a, a disliking of God? Or perhaps you feel indifferent about God? Uh, to love God with all your mind. What is filling your, uh, your thoughts? Does God fill your thoughts? Do you spend your time meditating upon God's word? I know I know as much as I should. Um, and I'm sure many others would say the same. Uh, to love God with all your strength. Uh, back to my original question that I posed an example. What do you devote your energy to? What do you devote your time to? So these questions, there, there's many other ways you could analyse your love for God, but this is just um, how I, I looked at the situation for myself to help me try and figure this out. But obviously we're not told to just love God with our heart or with our soul, but to love our God. God with your heart and soul and mind and strength. As I said, it's this, this whole being. Then he moves on to the next the next command. You should love your neighbour as yourself. Now, of course, in order to love your neighbour as yourself, you need to know how to love yourself. Um, I, uh, for this, have taking down a quote here from C.S. Lewis about uh, love. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. See, I, I wouldn't hail myself as a great guy. I don't think I'm a great guy. But I love myself because I wish for my ultimate good. If I'm put in a situation where I have two choices, one of them is beneficial to me and the other one is detrimental to me, I'm going to choose the one that's beneficial. Because that's what love for yourself is. And so, to love others as you love yourself is not to think everyone else is a great person, but it's to have this desire for, um, as C.S. Lewis has said, the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And those in the room who are Christian will know that um, the best that we can offer somebody is Christ. Because Christ is far greater than anything on this world, anything that we have, any possessions that we have, any relationships that we have, any experiences that we can have. Christ is better than all of these things. And so to, to love your neighbour as yourself is to give them Christ and there's also an aspect uh, in my opinion of, of this love and where you, you see a person for the potential that they have um, to better themselves not, not for the, the sinful state that we are all in uh, Christ himself was a carpenter and he would, he would look upon as a carpenter he would look upon a block of wood and he would see the wood not as, as a block but as uh, the potential of what he could sculpt it into, that's what a carpenter does. Uh, and so, 
uh, our love for each other should be like this. And then we get to the, the section where the scribe answers said, You are right, teacher. You truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. To love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbour as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So, it seems here that the scribe is given a fairly good answer. He started with, you're a right teacher. So that seems to be on the right track. Um, and then he, he continues and he seems to affirm everything Jesus has said. He affirms that um, you've truly said that he is one the God. There is no other besides him. Uh, and then he, he talks about the, the loving with, with all your heart and understanding and strength and loving one's neighbour. It seems like the scribe has a great grasp of what Jesus has said here. And Jesus, we see, Jesus saw that he answered wisely. And yet, Jesus replies to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He doesn't say you're in the kingdom of God, because he's not. And this drew my mind to a book that I had read recently uh, called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And this book is about a man called Nabil Qureshi, who was a Muslim and had moved to university and befriended a Christian whose name was David Wood. And um, over the course of his uh, years of friendship with David, he uh, came to understand more of Christ and to uh, eventually know him as a savior. Now this uh, passage of this book I would like to read to you. Um, is fairly close to the end and it is um, a, a dream that Nabil Qureshi has. At this stage he has um, come to understand a lot about Christ and uh, who Christ is but he's not a Christian at this stage. He says, On the morning of March 11, 2005 I had a new dream to scroll. <coughs> I'm standing at the entrance of the narrow doorway that is built into a wall of brick. I'm not in the doorway, but just in front of it. The doorway is an arch. I would say the doorway is about seven and a half feet tall, with about six and a half feet of its size being straight up from the ground. And there is one foot arched part on the top, capping it off. The doorway is slightly less than three feet wide, about three or four feet deep, all brick. It leads into a room where many people are sitting at tables that have fancy and good food on them. I think I remember salads, but I'm not sure. They were not eating, but they were all ready to eat, and they were looking to my left, as if waiting for a speaker before a banquet. One of the people, at the other side of the door, just inside the room, is David Wood. I'm unable to walk into the room because David is occupying the other threshold of the doorway. He is sitting at the table and is also looking to my left. I asked him, I thought we were going to eat together. And he said, without removing his eyes from the front of the room, you never responded. So here we can see this, this man's dream, where he stood before a doorway. He's not far from the doorway. He can see right into it. He can see the whole room in front of him. He can see clearly that the doorway is made of brick and that it is above him, and yet he's not through the doorway. He's not far, but he's not there. 
And that's the situation we have with this, this scribe. See, it's not the understanding that brings you to God. See, at that stage in the book, you're 250 pages through. Maybe Okreshi has a fair understanding of uh, Jesus by that point. And this scribe, it would seem by his answer, has a fair understanding of Jesus. But that uh, academic understanding, as we've already discussed, is not what brings you into heaven. It might get you not far, but it won't get you there. See, in order to come into heaven, you need to have that relationship with Jesus. You need to, uh, to know him as your, your saviour who died on the cross for you, that you might come into heaven, because that is the only way to get there. And so, this scribe who's tried to live his life for God by spending this time memorising this law and living for this law and um, writing out this law, this misconception that this was how he should live for God has led to his life being wasted. Now we move on to the next section, don't we? We move on to uh, verses 35 to 37. Um, where Jesus uh, is teaching in the temple and he says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Uh, Tim talk, talked to us about this recently and about how um, Christ was of, of David's lineage um, and that uh, he was in the same family tree, if you like. Um, and Christ here says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So this section that Christ is quoting here is from the Psalms. Um, and just a quick side note, um, there's two confirmations we get here. Firstly, that this Psalm is written by David, because he says David himself declared, and also that uh, the Spirit was with David writing the Psalm, because it says in the Holy Spirit he declared. Um, but the, the point Christ is making here is that Jesus was more than just a man of David's line. See, a man of David's line still a man. And yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. He wasn't just a man. See, this, this part that Christ quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, is written from David's perspective, and it's, it's different words for Lord here. Uh, in the original language of Hudi, it could also be translated, the Father had said to the Son. So he's calling the Son, Jesus, Lord. And Jesus said, well, that doesn't make sense. Because Christ is of David's light. He's below David. So why would David call him Lord, giving Christ a position above David? And on the surface, that might sound quite confusing. And you might say that that doesn't make sense. But the, the explanation is really... Uh, a simple one, which is that Jesus was holy man of David's line and holy God, God above David. And that's a really significant part of uh, Christianity because if Jesus was only partly man, he can't take the fullness of man's punishment on the cross for our wrongdoing. 
But if Jesus was only partly God, he can't fully forgive man's sin. So, in order for Jesus to accomplish what he was sent down here to do, he had to be holy man and holy God. And that's what this passage teaches us. That he was off David's line, or a man, holy man, and yet holy God. And this was a misconception that was had by um, some at the time, that the Messiah would just be of the line of David. Uh, and this misconception uh, really highlights a greater need for, for understanding scripture as we spoke of at the start, because it was this misunderstanding that has led to this confusion. And that's, I suppose, you could argue that that's the root of Islam today, is this idea that um, Christ was a man and not God. Uh, so we can see here that misconceptions do have great consequences, and again, that's why we need to be very careful of them. Moving on to our fourth section, uh, verses 38 to 40, um, Christ speaks of this importance of, or lack of importance, of outward appearance. The misconception being the importance of outward appearance. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a free time to make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now this importance that these scribes have put upon outward appearance to say it's unimportant is not quite going far enough. See, it's actually damaging. Because Christ, it's damaging to them and to, uh, to those around them. Because Christ warns, he says, beware. So it's, it's clearly damaging to other people. But he also concludes that they will receive the greater condemnation. So it's damaging to them as well. Now, there's not many people you would see um, particularly here that walk around in long robes and desire best seats in the synagogues but we can surely make comparisons to um, situations in our current culture in our current life see this idea of uh, walking around in long robes perhaps you don't wear long robes I certainly don't wear long robes but it's, it's about the, the extravagance that they like to walk around with. They like to walk around and have people marvel at the clothes that they are wearing. and uh, They like their clothes to show how great they are. Um, the, the greetings in the marketplaces. Now, there's not really many marketplaces going around, but they like their, their popularity. They like that as they were walking down the street that they would... They would meet people and those people would know them. You know, if they were taking their friend along the street, their friend would be like, wow, you know so many people on the street. And they would say, yes, I get greeted all the time. And we also, uh, or at least I certainly don't desire the best seats in the synagogues, um, but you know, the, the place of honor and feast, but perhaps we, we do desire recognition in other ways. Perhaps we do so dinner and expect to be seated at the head of the table. Perhaps we um, don't desire the best seats in synagogues, but desire the best seats in other places. And then he says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
Now, the, the devouring of widows' houses is this idea that they would um, take the, the houses off the widows when they were in this vulnerable position, having lost their husbands. Now, perhaps you're not uh, taking widows' houses, but perhaps you are being uh, covetous and uh, desiring possessions, and perhaps this is at the expense of people more vulnerable than you. And then the foreign pretense make long prayers. It's this idea of uh, a spirituality, but with the wrong motive. Uh, the NIV translates this for a show, make lengthy prayers. Now I want to be clear that lengthy prayers themselves is not the problem, and also that it's not prayers exclusively that this problem can come into. This can come into any aspect of our spiritual life. But in relation to the long prayers, um, I would say that um, Christ prayed for long in the garden. Um, it doesn't tell us quite how long, but the disciples did fall asleep three times, so I would suggest it was a fair length. And the, the issue there isn't the, the length of the prayer, but the, the doing it for a show. And so we can ask ourselves that, not only in our own prayers, but in any aspect, as I say, of our spiritual life. And, uh, in our involvement in church work, in our evangelism, in anything. But these things about your appearance didn't matter. Because they might have greeted many people in the marketplaces, and a friend might have found that impressive. And they might have worn long robes that the crowds thought were very uh, marvellous. And they might have been given the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour for people that did recognise them. But when we die, and we go to heaven, and there's that day of judgment, you don't give an account to other people. You give your account to God. And see, God, God isn't looking for someone with long robes. And he's not looking for someone that gets greeted in marketplaces. God's looking for someone that has faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what these people were lacking. And this misconception they had about the necessity of outward appearance and we can see at the end here uh, results in a, a greater condemnation so moving on to our, our final section verses 41 to 44 uh, we've got uh, quite a well known story here about uh, a widow um, who is putting her coins in the offering box and Christ says uh, in, com in comparison of the widow's uh, donation to the donations of the rich people, he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now I used to look at this passage and I used to um, think, well that makes sense. You think about maths, they gave out of their uh, abundance, they perhaps say gave 1% of what they owned, but she gave 100% of what she owned, so of course she gave more. But that's not really the idea here. The idea here is about their, their heart. See, these rich people, they, however you look at it, perhaps they were um, <coughs> donating this money to look good in front of others, or to show off how much money they had. Perhaps they were trying to buy their way to heaven. Um, however you look at it, they were living for themselves. See, they're, 
their motivation was to serve himself. I think you'd be hard-pressed to suggest that what this widow did was serving herself. Because Christ said, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. When this widow gave her two coins to this offering pot, she now didn't have anything to buy her next meal. She was without money at all. See, this widow's heart was to give everything she had to God and to trust that God would provide for her. She entrusted her life to the Lord and because of that, her life is secure. Perhaps her life isn't secure on earth, but her life is secure eternally because we know from the scripture, don't we, that if you want your life to be secure eternally, you need to trust in Jesus Christ as your saviour. So her life was secure. But this misconception that these uh, richer people had about um, buying their way to heaven gave them a false security. See, because when they get to the door and they, they say, oh, well, I, I gave lots of money in that offering box. Surely I bought my ticket. They'll find that actually that wasn't the requirement. They were looking at the wrong criteria. The criteria is a, a, a faith in Jesus Christ, which he doesn't tell us they have. So we spent the most of this meeting discussing various misconceptions and various um, beliefs regarding the Bible that are wrong. So what about the truth? Well, the truth is that there is a life after death. And there's both a heaven and a hell. And the truth is that Jesus, fully God and fully man, came down to this earth and died on the cross. He, he died on the cross as a man and took the punishment for all mankind and all our wrongdoing so that instead of going to hell as we deserve to, we might be able to go to heaven. And we know that there's no other way to get to heaven. Our works do nothing. We've seen that today, haven't we? See, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then you'll know this as well as I do, that we don't live to uh, memorize a law or any of these things. We live to share this message with other people. And that's what we're doing here today, isn't it? In this gathering, we're, we're sharing this message of Christ and what he has done for, for everyone uh, with all of you today. Because as we thought right back at the start about that theology professor that knew the scripture but not the power of God, perhaps you now have a greater understanding of the scripture than you did before you came into this meeting, perhaps not. Um, but that theology professor is not going to heaven. Because it's not that um, head knowledge, if you like, of the scripture that gets you into heaven, but it's faith in Christ Jesus and faith alone. So that's really the conclusion here today is that you should put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved. Uh, perhaps I will close in prayer now. And, uh, we'll Dear God, we come before you again this afternoon and we thank you for this opportunity that we have had to spend this time uh, reading in your word and thinking about uh, what it says to us and what we can learn from. 
And we think about your son and the, the teaching that he gave while he was here on earth. And we think of how uh, he's the only way we can get to heaven. And we thank you that we have that security in him that we, we need not worry about anything else for we know that we are completely secure and that our life is secure in him and that we need to do nothing else. And so we thank you for this again in the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.